Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 8. That is page 1606 in your pew Bibles, page 1606 in your pew Bibles, Luke chapter 8. That is where we're going to be. And as we come to God's Word, Charles Spurgeon said that we handle it not with mittens like children, but with gauntlets like warriors. Uh, because God's Word transforms us. God's Word is living and active. It's sharp. It separates bone from marrow. It cuts us down to the core. And so we look to God's Word to be transformed. It's not just an intellectual exercise when we come on Sundays. This is God transforming our lives, the Spirit moving in us. And so that's our prayer for the day. And as you turn to Luke chapter 8, let's go ahead and pray. Father, this morning we are grateful We are grateful that in your divine plan, in your sovereignty, in your providence, you have brought us to this place. Lord, we know that there's nothing that comes into our lives that has not first passed through your fingers, that has not come through your great filter. And so, Lord, we know that this message is for us this morning. The good news of the gospel is for our very hearts. And so I pray that you would encourage the downtrodden, that you would convict the comfortable, and that you would transform us as we transform the heart of the city. So watch over us now, Lord, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Luke chapter 8 is something like an action movie. If you read Luke chapter 8, it is just several instances of Jesus' earthly ministry back to back to back. Um, you have some pretty famous things that come out of Luke chapter 8. You get the parable of the sower, which is one of Jesus's most famous parables about gospel reception and the different ways people receive the gospel. You get some pretty amazing miracles that Jesus does. He calms the storm. It's one of Jesus' most popular miracles where he's taking a power nap in a boat and a storm comes and threatens to break up the ship and he just comes and says, stop, chill out, and all the waves and the winds stop and nature obeys him. It's a very action-packed chapter. And today we're going to study... One of the lesser studied parts of this chapter uh, is where Jesus cast out demons from a demon-possessed man. And so if you have your Bibles, page 1606, we're going to pick up in verse 26, and it says this. They, the disciples and Jesus, sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by demons into solitary places. Let's stop right there. I fancy myself something of a cyclist, and so the other day I was cycling down the Swamp Rabbit Trail, and if you're familiar with the Swamp Rabbit Trail, I was at the part where you're in between Linky Stone Park and the Swamp Rabbit Cafe, and there's trees on either side of you. Um, now, when you're a cyclist, you try and pay attention to the road ahead of you. You don't want to hit anything. That typically goes bad for cyclists. Being hit or hitting anything on a bike is never a good thing. And so uh, out of my peripheral vision, up on the right, I saw some movement in the bush, in the brush there. And uh, I, I was nervous. My, my heart started racing a little bit. I was thinking some sort of animal or person is going to jump out at me and potentially cause a crash. And so I was starting to slow down, and I was being more cautious. As I was watching, I saw this dog 
come out of the brush and he came out and it was it was uh, and I don't mean this in any kind of derogatory way. It was the mangiest dog I've ever seen. Um, I don't know what kind of dog it was. It was some kind of mutt. I don't know if you can say mutt in 2022. Um, I know I don't want to get canceled up here, but it was some kind of mutt dog. I didn't know the breed specifically. Uh, looked diseased, looked injured, looked like a dog that nobody had loved for quite some time. And it was interesting because in that moment, my fear of hitting something gave way to sorrow and pity. Uh, I saw this dog that needed to be loved, that needed somebody to take care of it. And just as quickly as the dog appeared, the dog disappeared back into the brush. And I think when we come to the story of this demoniac man and we hear of demon possessions, what we tend to do is we tend to be scared. We tend to think this is a scary individual. In fact, I would argue that that's true. If you look at Luke chapter 8 and the coinciding stories in the synoptic gospels uh, where this is recorded in Matthew and Mark, this is a scary individual. But as we read the story, it's not too long before our fears give way to sorrow and pity for this man. In fact, I would argue this morning that as far as the recorded gospels go, this is the most pitiful man that Jesus encounters. And our hearts should be moved to sorrow and pity and our hearts should be moved to hope in the gospel. And so let's dive back in. In fact, up until this chapter, um, this is again like an action movie. And what has happened is Jesus is attracting huge crowds in his earthly ministry. Jesus is attracting crowds so large that the people press in to hear him. The people press in to hear the message of the gospel proclaimed. People are bringing their sick. People are bringing those that need healing. And they're witnessing miracles. And Jesus is a popular man in the area that he was ministering in, the Galilean area. Jesus gets into a boat and he heads across with his disciples the Lake of Galilee. Now, what's so interesting is a storm comes up and threatens to break apart the ship and Jesus just calms the storm and his disciples are in fear and wonder of who Jesus is. There's this theme of fear all throughout Luke chapter eight. And then they land at this place called the Gerasenes. Now, your translation might say the Gadarenes or the Gergesenes, but it's the same place, essentially. He lands on shore at a place called the Gerasenes, and already in the first verse, we have the first red flag of this chapter. Because the Gerasenes, as we learn, is Gentile territory. Now, nobody gasped just then, but if you were a Hebrew, if you were a first century Jew, you would have. Because Jews don't associate with Gentiles. You see, the first red flag of this chapter is that Jesus crosses over into untrodden Jewish territory. This is where Gentiles live. We good Jews don't go hear Jesus. Do you not think that the people who saw Jesus set sail weren't questioning? Wait a minute, is he heading to the Gerasenes? Well, what is he? Who does he think he? What is he doing? Why would he go there? Do you not think that the disciples that were in the boat who were just going where Jesus told them to go were not questioning? What is it that Jesus is doing to us? Because good Jewish men and good Jewish women don't go to the Gerasenes. Good Jews don't associate with Gentiles. In fact, they call them the Gentile dogs. We don't cross those lines. And here's the thing about Jesus. Jesus was so laser focused in his earthly mission 
what was his earthly mission? To seek and save the lost. Jesus was so laser focused that he did not let cultural norms and taboos hold him back from doing the right thing. You see, when the kingdom of God breaks in, it gets uncomfortable. When God's kingdom comes close to humanity, things get uncomfortable. Jesus goes where he shouldn't have gone. Jesus goes where good Jews and good Jewish people, they don't go. And Jesus crossed over those cultural lines. You see, you and I face social pressures. You and I know cultural taboos. We don't talk to those type of people. We don't live in that area of town. We don't go to those places on Friday night. We don't do those things because we're good Christian people. And Jesus habitually and often crossed over the cultural and societal norms in order to seek and to save the lost. First Presbyterian, are we seeking and saving the lost? You see, we have this vision that God has called us to, to transform the heart of the city. And if we're going to do that, it's going to get uncomfortable. I mean, if we're really going to dig down, if we're really going to put our stake in the ground and transform the heart of the city, it's going to take some discomfort. Because it's going to take some going to where good Christian people ought not go, some talking to those people we don't talk to, some hanging out in the areas where we don't go. Maybe even for you, it's moving to an area that we don't typically live in being a missionary to those places because Jesus crossed over cultural norms. And then we learn this and pick up in verse 27. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house. He had lived in the tombs. Jesus is confronted by this demon-possessed man, this demoniac, we'll call him. This is scary. I've seen the exorcist. I know how this goes. It's terrifying. Jesus is in some sort of physical harm. He's around this loose cannon. This demon-possessed person. In fact, a few things we notice about this man. This man is from the town, and yet he's out living among the tombs. Can you just picture for a second? This man was not born in a vacuum. This story does not happen just out in the ethereal realm. This man had a family. This man had a job. This man had hopes and aspirations. This man wanted to be someone. No one wakes up and goes, you know what? I'd like to get possessed by demons today. I'd like to live among the tombs. No, this man had goals for his life. He had children, possibly. This was someone. And up until then, he was a part of town. He had friends. He had people that he would hang out with. And then one day, demons possess this man, and he is driven to the very edges of society. This man has a story. And he's alienated. He's isolated. He's naked. And in the Bible, nakedness is shameful. He's filled with shame. He lives among the tombs. He's as good as dead. And don't think tombs like a graveyard. Think tombs as in caves. Tombs that have been carved out of the side of hills. And he lives from cave to cave. In fact, this man's never even given a name in the scripture. Later, he'll answer that his name is Legion, for we are many. And that's a title. The demons are his very identity. They are who this man is. They are the sum of this man's whole personality, his persona and his identity. And some of us know what that feels like. Some of us know what it's like to be so deep in your own sin to harbor sins of gossip, sins of hatred, 
sins of racism, sins of drunkenness, sins of lust. We know what it's like to harbor those sins and hold on to them for so long that it becomes a part or even the totality of who we are and our sins define us and we feel hopeless. We feel filled with shame and we feel lost. And that's where this man is today. This is a real man in a real place with a real story. And for a long time, the man had not worn clothes and lived or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. And when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice. What do you want with me? Jesus, son of the most high God, I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him. And though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Did you know that in Luke, um, there's this idea called the messianic secret in Luke? Every demon knows exactly who Jesus is. There is there is nothing supernatural that is not aware acutely of the identity of Jesus Christ. In fact, in the scripture, all the demons have proper theology. Demons have great theology in the scripture. In fact, the book of James, Jesus' half-brother, he says, you believe in one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and they shudder. There are no demons who don't know who Jesus is. And this demon comes in front of Jesus and falls at his feet and says, I beg you, don't torture me. And then as we'll learn, there's an interesting twist on this. This is verse 30. Jesus asked him, what is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. A legion is anywhere from 2,000 to 6,000 Roman soldiers. Many demons had gone into him, and they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss or Sheol. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. This This story gets so bizarre. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs and he gave them permission. Jesus is Lord over the natural. We see that with the storms and he's Lord over the supernatural. We see that with the demons. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported that in the town and the countryside and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from where the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus feet, dressed and in his right mind. Stop right there. What we have here is complete and utter salvation. This is what Jesus does. Jesus takes a demon-possessed man, a man who had lived among the tombs, a man who was naked, a man who was out of his mind, as the Scriptures record, and gives him full and utter restoration. Isn't this what Jesus does for us? This is the business of Christ. This is where the kingdom breaks into our present reality and restores hope to the hopeless. It opens the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. It brings back life to the dead. It answers the questions of those who are doubting and it seeks and saves the lost. This man went from naked to clothed. He went from out of his mind to in his right mind. He went from falling at the feet of Jesus and begging not to be tortured to sitting at the feet of Jesus and learning. 
And you see, there were pigs that this man's demons were cast into, and they ran down the bank. And, um, and, and one of the weirdest things in the gospel, they run down the bank and they drown themselves. And the pig herders, they run back into town and they tell everybody. And then everyone comes out and sees this man. This man who for so long had broken chains. This man for so long who had been alienated and cast to the side of society. No one cared about this man. This man was forgotten. He was as good as dead. You would have passed him on the street and not thought another thing. In fact, we would have made excuses for why not to help this man. He might be dangerous. We don't know what this man is. He might be addicted. We don't want to help him out. And we'd walk right past him. And Jesus goes out of his way where he ought not go to a man that he ought not associate with. And he saves him. And this is the good news of the gospel. Praise God that he saves this man because it gives me hope that he'll save me. It gives me hope that he will seek and save the lost. Because we are people that Jesus ought not associate with. We are people that should be passed on the street when Jesus is walking by because we're not good enough. We haven't earned salvation. And the good news of the gospel is that it's free. It's free grace, but it's not cheap. It costs Jesus his life. This is the response of the people. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave because they were overcome with fear. And so he got into the boat and he left. That's a weird response. This, this man has just been saved. He's just been restored. And they asked Jesus to leave. Why? You know, sometimes we can be more comfortable with the demons we know than with this salvation that we're unfamiliar with. Sometimes we can grow so comfortable with our own sin that we don't want to take steps of holiness. Because we know that what we have in our lives is sin. We know that thing we've been wrestling with for weeks or months or years or decades. We know that Jesus is calling us out of that thing, whatever it is, whether it's drunkenness or lust, whether it is being mean to your spouse, whether it is a substance abuse thing, whether it's gossip, whatever your sin is, and you know Jesus is calling us out of it. But man, isn't sin comfortable sometimes? When you've had a bad day, isn't it easy to use your sin to help you relax? The Puritans used to call these my darling sins. These sins that I don't want to give up because they are like a warm blanket on a cold night. They warm my heart. And Jesus has not only called this man out of his sins, but people react in fear. There's a dread of holiness because it's hard to pursue Jesus. It is hard to grow in holiness. Nobody wakes up in the morning holy. You have to work for it. You have to pursue it. You have to spend time in the scriptures. You have to spend time in prayer. You have to spend time in fellowship. You have to be willing to give of your money. You have to be willing to give of your time. And listen, transforming the heart of this city will not come easily. Are we more comfortable with the evil we know 
than with the salvation and sanctification that we don't know. We don't know how God's going to transform the heart of this city. All we know is that he's given us today to be faithful. All we know is that he's given us our next step to flourish. All we know is that he has called us to follow after him. And are we willing to do that? Are we willing to take those steps of obedience? And the people were afraid. But I don't think the dread of holiness was the only reason. I don't think that was the only reason that people were fearful. I think there's more to it. You see, the reason we know this is Gentile territory is, one, because we have maps, um, but two, because there were pigs. In the book of Mark, a synoptic gospel with Luke, it tells us that there were about 2,000 pigs. That's 2,000 slabs of bacon. That's 4,000 racks of ribs. That's who knows how many pork chops. That's 8,000 pickled pig's feet if you're weird. I don't understand that. Why is that a food? Anyway, it's always at sketchy gas stations, too, that you see pickled pig's feet. That's a lot of money. You know, pigs were a part of the Gentile economy because they were food. And Lord knows when there's supply chain issues, people get upset, right? That was somebody's livelihood. This man's salvation was expensive. It came at a cost. You see, grace is free, but it's not cheap. In fact, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, writes this. We have it on the screen for you. We're going to have it on the screen for you. Can we get the Bonhoeffer quote, please? Thank you. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. And what Dietrich Bonhoeffer was saying, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer was writing this at the threat of Nazis taking over Germany. That's what's going on in his life. He was a pastor in Germany. You see, grace is free, but it's not cheap. If we're going to transform the city, it's going to cost us. The building is just the beginning. $33 million is just the beginning, and we better get comfortable with discomfort. Because I think God is calling us to something big. God is calling us to transform the heart of this city, and he's going to use each and every single one of us. You have a role to play in this. But it's going to cost us. It's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to mean we have to talk to people that we might not normally talk to. It's going to mean that we have to stop in the midst of our busyness and take time to have conversations with people we don't know. It's going to mean, heaven forbid, we might have to scooch over a little bit and give up our seat in the pews. It's going to mean that we might have to get comfortable sitting next to people we wouldn't typically sit next to. People that don't look like us. People who not, might not believe the same things that we believe quite yet. Because grace is free, but it's not cheap. Transformation is free, but it's not cheap. The work of the Spirit is free, but it is not cheap. So what happens to our demon-possessed man? 
We know that he's sitting at the feet of Jesus. He's learning. And whenever someone sits at the feet of Jesus, it means they're a disciple. We see this in the story of Mary and Martha as well. He's sitting at the feet of Jesus and he's learning. And in verse 38, the man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him. Remember, they asked Jesus to leave. But Jesus sent him away saying, return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over the town how much Jesus had done for him. So Jesus and his disciples are getting into their boat. The people are terrified at what's going on. They get into the boat and they're starting to get cast off the shore. And the man says, please let me get in the boat with you. I want to go with you. They were heading back to Galilee that we'll later learn. And Jesus says, no, you return home and you tell all that God has done for you. This is the first time in Luke that Jesus sends someone out. Now, here's my question for you. How long has this man been saved? This man's been saved all of what, five minutes? This man knew only that God had saved him. He wasn't a theologian. He hadn't read Mike Breen's Building a Discipleship Culture. He hadn't gone through missional leadership development course yet. The barrier of entry to missional living was so low that a man who Jesus just saved was able to enter. You see, I think a lot of times we make excuses to not be missional in our communities. And we come up with things that are just, uh, if we can be honest, just us lying to ourselves. I don't know enough. I don't know how to lead a Bible study. I don't know how to have that conversation. I don't know how to give of my money. I don't know where to give of my time. I don't know where to be involved. I don't know how to do these things. And I think at the end of the day, those are just kind of lies if we're being honest. The man knew enough to be saved, so he knew enough to be sent. He knew enough to be saved. He knew that he was saved by Jesus. Jesus had just cast out anywhere from 2,000 to 6,000 demons out of this man. He had taken a guy who was on the outskirts of society and brought him back into the fold, brought him back into community, restored him, healed him. And he says, now you go and tell of all the things that I've done. First, Pres, this is our calling today. You go and tell of all that God has done for you. How easy is that? The barrier of entry to gospel living, to missional living, is so low that if God has moved in your life, you can do it. If you can say, yes, God saved me in here, you can say it out there. If you can say, yes, God answered my prayer to me, you can say it to someone else. If you can take time in the hallway to stop and talk to me, you can take time at the grocery store to stop and talk to your cashier. In fact, I'm an introvert. I'd rather you talk to your cashier than me. He knew enough to be saved, so he knew enough to be sent. This is the good news of the gospel, that transformation begins with you. That we are not too far beyond God's reach to be saved. This demoniac man, this man who was as good as dead, this man who was literally hopeless, that the God of all time and all creation stepped forward and saved this man in particular. He can save you and he can save this city. He can transform this city. And not only can he save you, but he can send you. And he's asking you today to go and tell of all the things that God has done for you. Let's pray.
Father, the call of the Christian life is one of repentance and sending. That we turn to you and we turn to others. We turn to you in hopes of salvation. We turn to you in assurance of salvation, knowing that you have saved us from our sin. And we turn to others to tell of all the good things that God has done for us. And so, Father, this morning, I pray that you would convict our hearts, that you would help us to answer that calling, that we would think of one or two people in our community, one or two people, maybe they're at the gym, maybe they're at the grocery store we frequent, maybe they're people at our workplace, maybe they're people in our very home, but people that need to hear all that God has done for us. And maybe they don't look like us. Maybe it's going to be uncomfortable to talk to them, and that's okay. Because you did the uncomfortable. You stepped over the lines. You crossed over cultural and societal norms. And you did what was uncomfortable and you're calling us to do the same. So, Father, be with us. Convict us. May your spirit move in us as we continue in worship. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.